Hi, I'm Ryan Darby. I am the president of Credible Family. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the most powerful words that you can tell your children and why curiosity is the secret weapon of incredible parents. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you'd like to join in our conversations about today's show or any of our past shows, simply go over to Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. There you'll be able to chat about the show with other delicious listeners. <laughs> My name is Dov Barron, and I'm your host. You can find out more about me at DovBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. As some of my friends and friends know, uh, pretty recently my mom passed. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> As some of my friends and friends know, my, recently my mom passed. And in our last conversation, I thanked her for the gifts that she'd given me. And I also told her that I forgave her for some of the less than wonderful experiences of being her child. You see, my mom was a kid when I was born. She was naive and had no idea what she was doing. That being said, one of my sons and his wife became parents recently at the ages of 33 and 36, respectively. And even with lots of guidance, I watched them panic about parenting. Parenting might be the biggest, toughest, most responsibility we will ever get. And yet 99.9% .9 of people are at best sort of fumbling their way through. But what if you had a guidance from a place of neuropsychology combined with the science of what it takes to be a great leader mixed in with a delicious dose of nurturance? Well, here's what I've always found myself to be deeply curious about. This statement, if you knew better, would you do better? Well, that's the rabbit hole we're about to enter on this delicious series of episodes of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage, find a cozy corner, because our guests on this show are Brandon and Annalyn Miller. Our guests are Brandon and Annalyn Miller and Dr. Ryan Darby. Brandon and Annalyn are successful business owners and wait for it, the parents of no less than Da, 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 drum roll, please. Seven <laughs> children. They are the authors of Play to Their Strengths and Incredible Parent. Brendan is a Gallup certified strength coach, CEO of 34 Strong, and co founder of Incredible Family. Anna Lynn owns and operates the Anna Lynn Miller Group, part of the Keller Williams Realty. Um, joining them is Dr. Ryan Darby. He is the president of Incredible Family and the leading expert on strengths-based parenting. He is one of the designers of the Incredible Coach Certification Program and Assessments and has over 10 years of training and coaching experience. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me to welcome the terrific trio parenting Hey, I'm really glad to have you guys on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all of you for joining us and for being part of this. This is very cool. So parenting, as I talked about, is a, it's a vast subject. It's one that I'm deeply engaged in and committed to. But before we go there, before we dive off the edge of that cliff, I always like to start the show by asking, 
tell us something you're curious about. Something that you find yourself presently curious about at this point in time in reality. What do you find yourself curious starting with? So we'll start with Anna Lynn because, of course, it's ladies first. <laughs> and of course, well, thank I, you. that's that probably sexist today, but you know. Hey, I'm, what can I tell you? All right. That, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much. Um, so what am I curious about? So I would say one of my curiosities would be, so if we're talking about, so do we want a fun one or like? Anything you like, <laughs> whatever you choose. Okay. So I guess one of the things that I am curious about um, is probably talking about the strengths-based movement, like what would it be like if I had started with from infant, like had these tools when, when I had my first child mm -hmm. at an infant and what, what would have happened to that first child and the ones to come? Mm -hmm. Had we had these tools to actually assess me as a parent before I even had kids, it, it does make me curious to think right. what differences would I have made and where would I be even as a person and where would my child be that's knowing what I know now yeah I mean and it's you know it's that age-old question is right you know if you go back you, you know would you change things and and uh -huh. of course everything you've done that was crap because I will I will say this in front so everybody understands if you're a parent you did some crappy things it's just <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Pop yes. of the course, right? Um, so let's just start there. But you know, like if you go back, would you change some of those things? And yeah. it's a question always because you know you, we all want to do better, but kind of part of it has allowed your kid to become who they are. So it's interesting. Yeah, thank you, Brendan. What about you? So I am deeply curious if the teenage expression of independence—that we are five for five—that our kids lose their minds at 15 years old, if we have cracked the code to prevent my soon to be 14 year old from having to slide down that slope, or is it just inevitable that at that age, I have to endure another round of crazy decisions because this is part of the process. So <laughs> I've been very curious with number six, is he, is he gonna keep the streak alive? Or are we going to land oh, yeah. with a reasonable? Because number seven, I'm, I already know I'm screwed. So six <laughs> is my like is my like hope. Like I think this might be the one that breaks the streak, but we'll find out soon enough. Well, you will find out soon enough. And and from a psychology point of view, I would tell you uh, buy a screen pillow now <laughs> um, because it ain't going away, buddy. It's coming. <laughs> It's just part of the, it's part of the developmental stages. You were there, I was there, and if your kid doesn't go there, start saving for a therapy fund because it's going to happen much later, and it's going to be it's going to bite you in the ass better now than later. That's right. That's <laughs> Thank right. you for that, Ryan. What do you got? You know, I have a good buddy that whenever something, whenever she parents wrong, she's like, I just put more, more money in the therapy fund. We're good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> put some more money. <laughs> I say this to people all the time. Are you saving for college? And they go, yeah. I go, are you saving for therapy? And they go, no, why? And I go, start saving. It's a better investment. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you two. So yeah. I'm generally a very curious person. But one, we just took a trip to Southern California. My wife and I love it down there. I did my graduate work down there. We're in San Diego and we're like, maybe we should move down here. And then we pulled up 
housing crisis. We're like, how do people live in California? So that's curious, number one, where do people that work at like, you know, the grocery store in La Jolla, California, where do they live? Like, how do they right. want to live? Like the economics, I just can't figure out where the money's coming from. Yeah, because they're not, they're certainly not yeah. living right there. No, right? Unless it's under a bridge. <laughs> right, like where's the commute coming from? And it's that yeah. whole Southern California megatropolis like where do where oh, do that, yeah so they're probably coming where? so they're coming from New Mexico a little bit of a bus ride <laughs> you know, I, I leave early in the morning County. I gotta get to work there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of audio books the second one I, I just read a study uh, was a day or two ago talking about how humans always take the more complex approach of adding things to a problem so if a problem arises they think the way to fix it is to add more stuff. And we almost never try to fix the problem by subtracting something when a lot of times that's the right solution. Mm. And so that got my mind just going crazy about like, what, wait, wait, what from our evolutionary past made us little magpies? It's like, oh, I got, I got to add more in. Like, why aren't we saying no, less is good? Um, they, uh, well, I, I, that, that's a that's a real interesting one. That's a, certainly a rabbit hole we could go down, and maybe you and I will do that separately at some point in time, because um, I'm particularly fascinated by the evolutionary development of psychology um, mm -hmm. and how so much of it is rooted in history, mm -hmm. and yet so much of it is this tangent that we've gone on. Um, that is a very, very interesting thing, um, because that um, at a simple psychology level, this, you use the magpie as an analogy, but one of the things that we know is human beings, like, so we see these shows on TV, like the hoarders, and we're all like, oh my God. And we don't realize that we're all hoarders, all of us, even yeah. your minimalist friends are hoarders. But sometimes what we hoard is information. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we hoard is, is our old feelings. We hoard all the time. And it's part of this, this um, evolutionary psychology of feeling like there's not going to be enough. And when you live in a world that there's a lot of everything, what are you going to hoard? Because your brain and your rational prefrontal cortex is going, we don't need any of this. It's fine. We got lots. But there's another part of your brain back here that's saying, no, no, you got to keep it in case of, so what are we going to keep? Let's keep some shitty old feelings. Let's keep those. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep some grudges. Yeah, let's keep those. Right? Or let's keep some complexity, even when things are simple. So it's that. I mean, those are all of those are very interesting. Thank you all for sharing that. So let's jump off into this 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 subject of parenting because it is a it is a deeply troubling conversation in the context of what makes a good parent uh, or what makes a good child. And, you know, we've all, you know, I, I, one of my clients many years ago ran a dog training company, very, very successful dog training company. Um, and he would describe his training uh, for these dogs. And I say, yep, dogs and people, exactly the same. No difference. Reward the behavior you want, punish the behavior you don't want. There's not much difference. Um, and everybody wants to be loved. Every dog wants to be loved. Um, the only difference is that dogs have a, a shorter memory, thank God. Uh, <laughs> so they're not likely to bite you 40 years later and go, you didn't pay for my therapy. Uh, so, but, the, but when it comes to parenting, 
I think that one of the great similarities between dogs and children is I, I think outside of a neurological, neurochemical response, bad dogs don't exist any more than bad kids exist. Mm-hmm. Again, without, you know, outside of the chemistry. So oftentimes it's simply bad parenting from my point of view. I want to know what your thoughts are on that. You know, it, it, you know, and I'm assuming with seven kids, you, there was a point where you changed direction in the parenting style. So do you see it as a parent first, you know, cause it's the chicken or egg, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is my kid shit and, and, uh, because, <laughs> and I was a great parent or is it, I was a, ter- I was a terrible parent, but my kid shit or what is the cycle? So over to you. Yeah, I, I'd say uh, we learned that we were the shit parents. <laughs> it wasn't the kids. Uh, we learned that when we were very honest with ourselves in a moment of clarity, that we were parenting our children to make us look good. Very good. Thank you. And because we figured that out, we realized they caught on to that game. And they didn't feel like they needed to exist to make us look good. They, they rebelled against that. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> they, 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 they wanted, they wanted us to parent because we love them mm-hmm. and because we, we are committed to their welfare and their well being. But in that, in that space of feeling like we had to measure up to the Joneses or the, the fosters or the stewards, right? We had to measure up. We had to, we had to show mm-hmm. well, because that reflected on us as people, as professionals, as just, Mm-hmm. all around life and it's it's a bunch of crap because in reality when you live that way you, you're never going to measure up to someone else's standard for what makes them a great parent you're never going to measure up to what makes them a great person you got to figure your own your own your own through path and and I think that was our awakening was you know our best shot at this is to figure out what are we authentically good at what what can we do well as a parent and give these kids a break you know let them let them find some expression. Let them. Let's figure out who they are instead of trying to mold them and who, into right. who we think. Right, they need taking to be. some responsibility on ourselves. You know that they are doing what they're doing or they're saying what they're saying, maybe because of something we did or influenced. You know, yeah. rather than putting it all on on the child. Yeah, it's that moment <laughs> of maybe this kid acts like this because of me. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, a terrifying moment. It's a terrifying moment. A Taking responsibility. Primary yeah. influencers in this relationship probably fall on us. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, Doc, because that came through the understanding partially that in the workplace as a manager, I disproportionately impact my employees' behavior and who they are. Well, if you carry that home and go, well, you know, if science mm-hmm. tells us or, or or stats tell us, Ryan could say more to this, but that I, if I disproportionately impact at a, let's say 70% or 80%, well then for a child, that's gotta be in the 90, 95, or I mean, that's gotta be on us. And, and I think that that take back is frightening and empowering at the same time. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on that, Ryan? Yeah, it's, so th- this is a really hard one because it's a yes. Like it's yes that we are born with kids who are, they're not blank slates. Like we know no one's no. Born a blank slate. You come in with genetic dispositions that are going to push you to act in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm. So some of those dispositions, I like, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. 
but are going to look like struggles. Some kids are born who are headed like personality, the personality they're born with, the you know neurological disposition they have. It, it's going to be a struggle for them. Mm-hmm. So we know that, and we know that there are some kids. My, I'm thinking of my um, sister-in-law's kids. They're just born like angels, and I looked at them and like, whoa, how did you get so lucky, right? So that we have these over here. And then we have parents that are trying to figure out which ones they have. And this is the part where we, I think we get in big trouble is we're trying to act as if our children are born perfect angels and they'll never do anything wrong. And then when they do something wrong, we're like, I guess like, how can my kid do this? And then we come down super hard and super angry. We end on this escalation thing and we're not parenting the kid we have, which creates all sorts of problems. And so I would say it's a dynamic between kids and you that like, we got crap kids, we got crap parents, and we feed off each other to create just really bad relationships. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Mm. And there's, there's something very interesting in that because when we look at those dynamics, as you said, we, you know, we used to think um, that people were born with banks, blank slates. The, you know, you and I would know from a psychology point of view, you know, was that the conversation was, is it nature or is it nurture? And, and, um, we knew we now know for sure that the um, the primacy of DNA is false. It's not it's not the leading way. However, you're not a blank slate either. And then you've got epigenetic responses that are going on uh, based on parenting. And because of the epigenetic responses, they're not only going on from the history of the family that predates you coming into existence, but they're also environmental. So there's a whole bunch of things that are going on all the time. And I, and I think we like to think of it very linear and parenting is not linear because there's all these influences. Would you agree with that, Ryan? Do you think that? A hundred percent. And thinking back to your original point with the dogs and the rewards and punishment, I am a huge fan of behavioral reinforcement. And I think we don't teach that enough to parents. No, I think it's a missing key. Like, we just we just ignore it right we just ignore it but i also think like the like reinforcing great behaviors is really hard because i mean think about the why why we all gain weight like we eat a donut and a donut immediately feels so good right and the bad effects are so far away but when i say no to a donut the good effects are so far away and the bad effects are right here so like and that's what parenting is like you know when i praise my child for doing something good. Yeah, the child feels good in the moment, but I don't see the lasting effects of that change until years down the road. So Brandon and Annalyn are now experiencing that. They're all grown up. So I got to give a shout out to parents to just say like, it's tough. Like it's tough to be able to reward and punish in the moment in the right ways and be cognizant of that. So yeah, again, as I said at the beginning, I mean, I think that we all got to grasp that parenting is not easy. It's yeah. the toughest job of all. And and I'll be honest, I think that it's it's the toughest job of all. And it's for me, it pisses me off that you need a license for a dog, mm-hmm. you know, but you have no training for a kid, and people are popping out kids and they, you know, they've got no parenting skills. I mean, let's just let's go outside of these wonderful books that you've written and the work that you're doing. Let's go outside that for a minute and go, okay, well, how do people learn to parent? I'll tell you how. They got parented. And often by shitty parents. (laughs) So they go, oh, well, this is parenting. 
or you know and, and what's more is this is better parenting i've got a friend right now um having some enormous challenges with a with a 21 year old enormous challenges and those challenges are coming out of the fact that dad is a better parent than his dad was and dad's mm. still a crappy parent mm. but he's a better parent than his dad was he doesn't hit anybody with a belt anymore you know, he just verbally beats on him or emotionally beats on him. So he, because he doesn't do physical violence, he thinks he's a better parent. I'm like, yeah, I get it. That is, yeah, I'll give you some points. That's better. But minimally, you know, out of a million, yeah, you get four points for that. That's great. <laughs> but he is still, you know, 900,000 know, 900, plus in the, in the red. So that's part of the challenges we're, we're parenting how we parented. Did you see that in yourselves, Brendan and Alain? Did you see that in yourselves? Absolutely. And, and that, okay. So talk to us a um, little bit about that because I'm really interested to know about, and I know our listeners will be interested to know about, how were you parented? Sure. Because I sure. think this is one of the challenges is, I, I know this and maybe you do, Ryan, too, is that people are very reluctant to say, you know, I love my mom and dad, but they were crap at their job, right? My mom and dad, I'll go first. My mom and dad were terrible. My dad was a narcissist and I can qualify that. He was a narcissist <laughs> and he had a lot of, lot of problems in his life. I don't think narcissism is something that you're born with. I think it's trained into you. You can have a preeminent, a predominance towards it, but my dad was definitely trained that way by his dad. Um, my mom was uh, emotionally unstable. Let's go with that. Um, and very, very needy. This was not a great parenting combination. And, you know, and I had to parent myself and the 150 siblings I had, not really, but it felt that way because I was seven and I had to be a parent. So wow. talk to us a little bit about parenting, you know, that you got how that reflected and how you kind of lived that out and then had to admit, mm, maybe they didn't do a great job. Yeah. I, I would have to say with, with, I was lived with a single mom and she was the permissive type. And I think it was actually not, I don't know that it was her fault. I think she was doing the best that she could. She was going to college to be a nurse while working as a single mom with three kids and, you know, I, I would say that in, in how I ended up parenting, I did take on some of those, yep. some of those um, things as well, in terms of how I treated my kids and how I, maybe, maybe my attention to certain things, it varied because I was like, oh, that's not as important, you know, right. and and what I mean by that is, you know, my mom didn't go to all my school things. You know, she didn't go to my softball games. She was working or going to school. That was the important thing, quote sure. unquote, right? Yep. So, so I feel like that was something I took on in, in terms of like, well, you're fed and <laughs> you have a house. So, you know, like yeah. be grateful for that, you know, and yeah. if I can catch one game this season, you should be happy about that. Um, so totally unhealthy. <laughs> and obviously our kids felt it. Uh, but definitely something I carried over that had to be corrected in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. What about you, Brandon? So my mother would be the classic, when I say jump, 
you say how high mm -hmm. type, very authoritarian. Mm -hmm. That was her upbringing. And yeah, so, sure. so the corporal punishment and action reaction. So the first reaction, once there was any level of frustration or anger was physical, physical assault. That, that's how it was going to go. And so the, the very young learning, if I do this, I get slapped across the face or I get my ear pulled and it bleeds <laughs> or I get, you know, some kind yeah. of response yeah. that until I got older and realized what I was doing to my kids that mirrored it, that I, it was abuse. It, like yep. this, we've, we've crossed out of healthy discipline to help a child learn mm -hmm. what is appropriate or not to punitive, mean, mm -hmm. angry responses mm -hmm. that only have one intention. It's mm -hmm. to induce fear and it's to induce immediate obedience, immediate right. compliance to make my life easy. Just do what I say. <laughs> And, and, yeah. and so coupled with uh, a dad who was present physically, emotionally, not no. there that, and, and knowing his upbringing, I think he was mirroring his, in, his uh, impact and certainly my mother was as well. And, and so I think coming from that, trying as many of us would, seeing the positive aspects, Annalyn was saying, you know, Great, great upbringing, great opportunities, you know, well-fed, well-cared for, those, those types of felt needs, right? We're, we're all met, all those boxes were checked. And not accounting for what occurs when you, when you have a distorted view of love, a distorted view of how to show that, that level of, of respect to a child. And, and yeah, actually seeing it as I'm respecting this person mm -hmm. as I would any other person. Mm -hmm. They don't exist just to follow my rules, follow my lead. That's not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And it took time. It took time to come through and it did take some, some, some therapy. It did take some conversations to gain some objectivity around and some permission to say that wasn't good. That mm -hmm. wasn't right. And until I could get there authentically, then I could bring it forward into now I need to adjust. Now, now I need to do Don't better. you see that that's the, I mean, you're doing this work now and, and that's wonderful that you're doing it. But is that a challenge you, you face? And you probably can answer this one too, Ryan. In that, you know, human beings are pretty awful at admitting when we're wrong. We don't <laughs> like to do that. We all have yeah. egos. We all got an ego. Um, and in the context of that ego, it is sometimes very challenging to say, I was wrong, I screwed up. Um, you know, I've written lots and lots and lots about this is I wrote a piece that came out a couple of weeks ago called you don't need anything else to change. And, and it talks about mm. how, <clears throat> how, you know, uh, the example Ryan gave earlier about, you know, the donut. You know, you want the donut, you don't have the donut. We all know the marshmallow experiment, et cetera. Um, we're, we're, but aside from delayed gratification, there is this desire to not be wrong. Um, I, I studied cult psychology. It was one of my areas to study. And I was fascinated by it because I knew somebody was in a cult. That's how I ended up studying it. And, and I was like, this is a really intelligent person. This was a lawyer who'd studied people like Bertram Russell and, you know, was a very bright person and was in a, was in the Moonies. And I'm like, you know, back in the day, and I'm like, what happened? 
And I realized the same thing as I realized it, recent insurrection is if you believe in something and it's proven wrong, you will still hold on to it because you can't prove that you don't want to admit that you were an idiot. Nobody <laughs> likes to be an idiot. I don't matter who you are. <laughs> I, I train speakers and I say, the last thing you need to do is make your audience idiots, right? <laughs> they are because you're educating them about something, but you can't have them feel like an idiot about it. It's like, you've just got to let them know you had no idea. So this is part of the challenge. How do you face that, Ryan, when it comes to the whole parenting thing and trying to help people to be better parents? Because people don't really want to admit that I've been doing a crappy job. You know, I really love this. By the way, one of my curiosities was about the rise of the QAnon. I was like, ah, uh, we'll wait on that one. <laughs> right? like, so, you know, like, yeah. We can go anywhere you want, mate. <laughs> you nailed one of my curiosities. So we'll have to talk about that one. Um, so you're absolutely right. Like we want to feel successful. We have that like ego protection is so big. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny that people that tend to want to work with us are the people that are, are vulnerable, mm -hmm. that are already in that mode of striving to be a better parent, that they're like, you know, I, I need to do this better. They tend not to be the ones that actually really, really need the help. Like, no. Just candidly. The ones that come to us are are already making progress they would find a way forward generally even if we weren't there but the ones we really really want to help are like no no i don't need no help my my, my parents hit me that's the way I, I turned out just fine i'm going to do it right next to my kids like we're just please like work with us <laughs> let's help you uh and i and i'll say candidly like we can't help people unless they're willing to be vulnerable like that like we can't there's nothing that I can say or do to someone who thinks that they've got it all figured out, that they don't need a way forward, that their kids are just fine, even though their kids go to bed crying every night and need to see a therapist because of the way they're treating them. No, I can't help them until they're willing to want to be helped. But that's the challenge. This is, this is I mean, this is where I'm at with this. Like you've written a parenting book, written two parenting books, and I'm grateful that you've done that. And that's wonderful. I'm sorry, but so what? Yeah. Right. So what? I've written 13 books. So what? Right. Uh, you know, I'm not any different with yours than I am with mine because yeah. the people who need my book are not going to read it. Yeah. The people who don't really need my book are already on that road. And as, and as Ryan just said, would find a way are going to read it. And that's wonderful. And maybe there's a tipping point and maybe somebody says something to somebody. And I hope that that's true. I pray that that's true, but that's more my optimism than it is reality i'm think right so, you know even for you guys you know um you're a realtor you're a business guy you've written this parenting book okay you know <laughs> okay eye rollage oh thanks for the book you know and they'll right. the draw yep. and it will never get opened Talk to us about that. See, I we used to be, my wife and I owned a seminar company. We ran seven separate programs. Um, one of which was, as I told you before, was called Conscious Parenting. We taught people how to be parents. Um, for using positive psychology, using attachment theory, using uh, uh, brain development, all those wonderful things. And and I, I we closed the business after 15 years or something, didn't even sell it, closed it. Because I was so frustrated with being in the recycling business. 
That's mm. what I called it. And then people recycling through from, they go and take Tony Robbins program. They take Harv Eker's program. They take Satyan's program. And then they come to my program. Oh my God, this is a lifesaver. Oh, why have they ever missed this? This is so <laughs> wonderful, right? This is the thing we need more than anything. And then they disappear. And then they'd start in the recycling again with another set of programs. They're looking, they're hungry, but they're not actually doing any change. And they're trying to get their friends to come in because again, that uh, psychological need to persuade others that I'm right. They bring people in, but those people don't really want to be there and nobody's actually implementing. So you may notice a little bit of frustration about this. A little bit. Uh, just a little bit. Just a bit. <laughs> um, because a lot of what we're doing is not really making the difference. Yes. It yes. doesn't mean you should stop. Please understand that. Yeah. I'm not saying you should stop by any stroke of the imagination, but this is the point. You know, Ryan, it's what you do in, in your life, it's what you guys have done with the book, it's what I've done with my entire life. Talk to us about how that plays out in your yeah. work. Well, I'll just start by saying we want to make it where it's not taboo to go, man, I'm struggling as a parent or I've really not done a great job and I want to do better. It's almost, it is currently, and I would say it still is a bit taboo to say, I'm really sucking at this and I need, I need some help. I need some direction. And I think, I, I, I guess the correlation, I kind of think of like AA and how, you know, it used to be kind of like, Okay, no one wants to know. And now, you know, they, they change that whole trajectory and instead being proud, being proud when you go, man, I've been 10 years clean, 15 years clean or whatever. And this idea of like, just taking away that we have to have this certain image because you're right. People stay hidden. They don't get help. And the people who really need it are too scared to reveal their true selves. Mm. And And what's interesting is it doesn't happen overnight and it really just happens by one conversation at a time, right? One book at a time, implementing one thing. And interestingly, we wrote our first book with the idea of how can we make this practical where if if they read one chapter, this is going to change that family. So we, we purposely did each chapter in a way that there was something that you had to put into practice with that chapter, for instance. So, so we knew like parents might read one chapter. Okay. Well, how can we change them with one chapter? (laughs) Uh, Because we know that's, that's, it's true. You're right. It's a frustration that I think we've even felt ourselves, you know, being those people to be willing to lead with Hey, we're going to start chapter one with, we sucked as parents. Right. That's our first chapter. Like, okay, let's, let's just put it on the table. people. And we we get the recycle because we attended the conferences and we did the, We did the 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 idea around let's go get another viewpoint, another perspective, another right. idea. And I think I think what parents that we've encountered, they do want permission to acknowledge there's a problem. They do yep. want to feel safe doing that, and and knowing that there is a way out that I can sustain. There's a way forward that I could do something with. And and so I, I think for us, part of what we try to gift to parents is the way forward is already in you. Right. We're not, we're not going to, we're not going to turn you into someone you're not. We can't, you don't get to be a different person. And the hope is, and, and we've experienced the frustration too, is that it's, it's incremental, right? It steps forward. You're going to make it a bit better. Let's hope 
next gen makes it a bit better. So, so we are hoping for that progression. Well, I'd like to share something with you that a very dear friend of mine taught me. Um, I was walking down Robson Street, which is the main shopping street in Vancouver one day. And I saw a lady who had taken one of my trainings probably three years before. And she comes bounding up to me, big smile on her face, wants to give me a big hug. How are you doing? You know, and, and uh, you know, it was really lovely to see her. She'd been a student and it was lovely to see her. And I asked her, how are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm so great. And I, I you know, I, I've just taken this workshop and I really understand what's been driving me. And, you know, and, I, and she went on and the, further, the longer she went on with her joy in her face, the more I wanted to punch her in the head. <laughs> not literally, of course, not literally, not literally, but it felt that way. Just, I was so frustrated. And I, and it, I was on my way to see another mate of mine, Peter, who was also in the same world, same business as me, um, when he lived here. And, and I said, Pete, I'm just like, this is so frustrating that I can't get people to get it. And he said to me, he said, now again, he's in the same business as me. He said, uh, he goes, you're not very, you're not really a handyman, are you? I said, oh no, I don't even change light bulbs, dude. I'm <laughs> not me. And he goes, okay. He goes, do you know what ebony is? I said, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an African wood. It's a black wood. And he goes, yep. And he goes, do you know how hard it is? And I said, no. He goes, it's very hard. He said, so if you take a nail and you try to bang it in ebony, do you think you'll succeed? And I said, yeah, I guess eventually. And he goes, exactly, eventually. And I said, okay. And he said, well, here's the thing you need to know. Let's imagine it takes 50 hits to flatten the nail into a piece of ebony. And I said, okay. He goes, you may have delivered the first 49 hits to that woman. And the person who delivered the 50th is the one she'll remember. The ones we remember are the person who delivered the first blow that probably didn't even make a dent in the wood. And the last blow, everything else doesn't count. And that's the, the, the miracle is the person who delivered that 50th blow. They can sometimes remember where it started, but they'll always remember where it finished. And so change your mind and understand that you are making a dent in the, in the wood. You may not be pushing that nail all the way home, but that's what you're doing. And that is what got rid of my frustration with, with doing that work that's is bad. I'm just, I'm delivering a blow to the nail in the ebony and, and it might not be the last blow, mm -hmm. but I will give it every force I can to have it land and uh, in the most, of course, in a loving way, but to have it land for that person in a way that will shift them. So that, that's taught me some, some, mm -hmm. some patience with this subject. So I wanted to share that with you because I, I've never met anybody in, it was in the world of, uh, development who has not <laughs> faced this frustration. Mm -hmm. So we are already at the end of our first part of the show. Uh, and for you, dear listener, um, I want you to stay curious because we're going to come back for part two, which is just one click away. And we are here with Brandon and Annalyn and Miller and Dr. Ryan Darby. We're talking about what does it take to be a conscious parent? What does it take to be to play to the strengths of your children and be 
what it takes to be an incredible parent. And uh, we're talking about that journey. We're talking about what it's been like for for each of these individuals um, to parent and to be parented and then to make a difference in the lives of others. So remember, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. We'll see you on part two of these delicious episodes of Curiosity Bites. Stay curious.